Hey everyone, you're listening to very special and spectacular music, but basically you're listening to the ETH podcast. My name is Jennifer Kakshuri, and I'm here with someone who has a ton of talents and success in very many different fields. In sensor networks, the Internet of Things, human-computer interfaces, space-based systems, interactive music, etc. Uh, wonderful to be here. I'm Joe Paradiso. I'm a professor at the MIT Media Lab, and I was a postdoc here at ETH back in the early 80s. So Joe Paradiso is here in Switzerland right now in the ETH studio in Zurich. He will be heading to Davos later this week, where the ETH has a pavilion and will be present during the World Economic Forum. Joe will be giving a talk and he'll also be on a panel on the topic of rethinking creativity in Davos. But before Joe travels to the mountains, I can talk to him and we can also take an earful of his music. The music we are listening to right now is music you created on your synth with sounds from Zurich. Joe Paradiso, you used to live here in the 1980s as a postdoc in physics. And what goes through your mind when you listen to this, let's say, old audio material? Oh, it was a, a special time when I was here. Uh, I actually built most of my large synthesizer during my second year at ETH because the uh, you know, first year I just worked all the time the way MIT workaholics tend to do. Second year I had to do something else and yeah, I was getting to know some Swiss people and it was a slow gradual process uh, but I had all these ideas about things I could do with electronic music. There were chips that were coming out that could make sounds. I had built my first synthesizer as an undergraduate and uh, I used it a little bit but then I did my PhD it was at CERN at that time and then I uh, came here but I had all these ideas left over. So uh, I, I started getting a hold of these chips that were surplus electronic stores in Zurich at the time where I could uh, you know, buy all these components. I had a great lab at ETH where I could, at least in the evening, start to build these things. And uh, when I build them, I'd bring them home and use them. So I, before I even had a cabinet and a power supply, I'd just rig them up and I'd, I'd start to make music. I brought a mini Moog from the States over here. Uh, I had an old Casio keyboard. I bought a Moog satellite in Geneva when I was uh, visiting CERN at one point. So I had those keyboards. Eventually they became integrated into my big modular, but back then they were somewhat standalone. And uh, I would just try to make pieces. I, you know, creativity is always important for me. And I had this time in Zurich. I would make the stuff, but I want to use it. And in those days, I was making kind of songs. I was, you know, just starting to stretch my uh, musical muscle a little bit more in that period. So it's a period of growth development. When I hear it now, it's a little bit embarrassing in some ways. But why embarrassing? Oh, I moved on, right? So, uh, yeah, I was at a certain level there. I got to a different level later. Uh, it's musically always, speaking, yeah, not musically technically. Speaking. Well, technically, too. I mean, life always goes on. But, uh, yeah, musically, uh, you know, I developed a lot more since. How would you mix the music in back 
then in the 1980s? Well, at that point, I didn't have any kind of a studio. I just had some keyboards and I had a couple of tape recorders. I had a cassette recorder and reel-to-reel in my apartment. And, and then I bought a Revox actually down the street. So I had a nice Swiss recorder there. Um, and uh, the way I mix all the sounds is I typically use something like a bar of soap. At one point, I used a few resistors, but that didn't really scale well because you can't fade. But in, uh, I take a, from my bathroom, bar of soap, I put pins in the bar of soap. I connect the wires that have the audio to the pins. And depending on where the pin is in the bar of soap, you could change the amount it was fading. Although as the soap started to dry out, the whole mix would change. So you had only a certain amount of time you could work until you had to wet the soap again. But uh, I'd improvise. And any way I could, I'd get the technology together to make the recordings that I did. So let's go back to the Hönkerberg recordings. What was it about the Hönkerberg garage that made it so special that you'd record right there? It's, I noticed it when I first, I still live in Geneva, I had a little Fiat Spider when I lived there. And then I drove to Zurich when I started the job at ETH. Uh, and of course, the first thing I do when I'm here is I drive into the parking garage in Hönk. And uh, at that time, they didn't have the soundproofing that they put since on the, on the walls and the ceiling. So it was the most cavernous environment I had ever been to. It's like a large Swiss fallout shelter, just incredibly echoing. So I, I didn't notice it so much. I parked my car, I got out, I slammed the door, and boom, this big sound. And I was amazed. I, I, it, it, you know, every time I'd go to ETH with my car, I'd love slamming the door because I'd hear this big echo. So I thought, okay, I've got to use this. It's such a beautiful reverb. I went uh, a couple of nights when there was no one there late, and I'd set up one of my recorders, and I put microphones in different parts of the garage, and I bought a melodica, actually, one of the stores down the street from where I lived. And I would just play melodica, improvise, and just wander around and play and record it. So uh, when I was doing the piece that, that you're playing, I figured, okay, I'll have a little interlude in the beginning, and I'll feature this kind of bluesy melodica I recorded in the parking garage at ETH. So I, I dropped it in. So you said that you would do this in the evenings when people were gone, but a postdoc physics student building big synthesizers, somehow that doesn't uh, go together in my mind. How did you do it? How did you bring these two different extremes together? Well, I always loved music ever since I was a kid. So for me, it was always important. Um, and I loved electronic music when I first started hearing it, all these songs, because I loved electronics and technology, and it was always building electronics since I remember. Um, so in my generation, instead of building ham radios like kids did maybe in the generation before me, uh, we built audio systems and, and synthesizers. So, uh, yeah, that was my motivation. I wanted to build the synthesizer. I wanted to actually own one. I was inspired by Klaus Schulze, Jean-Michel Jarre, Tangerine Dream, uh, all these great musicians. Uh, Richard Pinhas and Heldon, but I never uh, could afford to touch one because they were too expensive. So I figured I'd build one. And, and when I was an undergraduate, that's really how I learned electronics is in building the synthesizer. Um, and then when I did my PhD, I built a computer-controlled synthesizer at CERN. So it was in our KMAC crate. People from other experiments would come to hear it make uh, computer-controlled music. So I played a little bit with that. But when it came to Zurich, As I mentioned, I had all these leftover ideas, and I was doing electronics at a different level in the lab. We were building drift chambers for an experiment that was going to go into LEP. Uh, it was all fast electronics, very low noise, and I was doing a lot of that. But still, you know, I had all these chips available. There were chips coming out. I heard a gas system in Aachen at our collaborators at the TH in Aachen. When I visited, they had a speech interface in the gas system, and it was talking. 
And I thought, well, I can make a module out of that. And they told me what the chip was. I found a company, it was a U.S. company, but I found a company in Zurich that would import it for me. So I got some of those and built those into a module. So anything I could build into a module, I did. At that time, I could have made a computer-controlled synthesizer or a computer synthesizer. People did. The PPG Wave 2 was around that time. But it would have been an enormous amount of work. It would have made no sound until it was done, and it would have been obsolete right away. Uh, because I built these modules, uh, I could use them right away since I finished them. So a day, I built a module, two days, I could use it immediately. Uh, and it hasn't gotten obsolete because it's one volt per octave, triggers. I can use it with Eurorack or the modular systems that are around now. Matter of fact, the synthesizer, at one point, I uh, was thinking about just... Uh, getting rid of it. It's big. It takes up space. Who wants a modular synthesizer in the early 2000s, right, or late 90s? It's all computer. But I kept it. I couldn't do it. And now it's so in vogue. And also when I brought it to Ars Electronica, they invited me to bring the whole rig out for their 20th anniversary. Wait a second. You have to explain. Ars Electronica is a very important music festival in Austria for electronic music. And they brought your humongous Paradiso synth to Yes. Austria, can you describe what it looks like for people who haven't seen the pictures in the if, internet? If you go to synth.media.mat.edu, you can see it and actually hear bits of it. But it takes up a, a room. It probably is about uh, maybe four meters. The synthesizer itself is maybe three, four meters by maybe two, three meters. It forms an L, typically. And it's all modules that have inputs and outputs. So this is an old patchable synthesizer like the old Moogs, where you physically have wires that, that many, many control wires. it. Many wires. When I do a patch, especially the autonomous patches of the kind I'm, I'm streaming now to Davos, which is a lot of what I do with it now, it probably can have 500 wires in it. It gets incredibly complex. That's how I get all the complex audio that's happening. And this is the vision I had in Zurich. I, I mapped it all out then. I wanted logic. I wanted uh, uh, you know, different kinds of trigger sources so I can make these big autonomous patches. At the time, I thought, oh, I'll be like Klaus Schulze. I'll have this big module. I'll play the keyboards. And of course, that's what I did when I lived in Zurich. And I still love to play keyboard. I, you know, my students and I, we jam. I'm kind of a psychedelic rock player. It's a lot of fun. But I can't get to the level playing a keyboard that I can get with these patches because it just lives in its own world. It's a machine that I physically patch into it, a behavior, a program that generates that music. So I have so many sources of control and timbre modification and sound generation in the synthesizer that I can push it many, many places. Places. And because I did Ars Electronica, uh, I was ready to give it up. I saw there was a lot more depth in this thing I built when I was in Zurich. It could go so much deeper. Uh, and every time I go back to it, I discover more that I can do. So it's not done. So while we are talking here now in Zurich at the main building of the ETH, your synthesizer is actually working in Boston, in your basement. And um, let's take an earful of that. this is a live stream of what's happening to your synthesizer in Boston right now. How does the synthesizer know what it's supposed to do? It 
knows about it because it's just got a behavior patched into it. What I start with typically is a simple repeating sound or a simple sequence that I can patch into the old sequencer. And in this synthesizer, I have also a Minsky Muse. One of my colleagues at the MIT Media Lab is Marvin Minsky, pioneer for artificial intelligence. Many people know him. Uh, fortunately, we lost him a few years ago. He passed away. But he was a huge influence in many fields. But m people don't realize that in electronic music, he built the first autonomous music generator as a product around 1970. And as a kid, I saw it in the Museum of Science in Boston. I was amazed by it. Marvin eventually became a good friend. And uh, uh, his daughters gave me one of his muses. Uh, that we reconditioned and I modified so I can patch it into my modular. So I found a patch on the Muse, it just does this big pseudorandom sequence, that was kind of in D minor. So I figured, okay, this sounds good. I built my sequence a little bit around that. And then once you have these two sources of audio happening, I can start having other processes come in and come out. So they trigger other things that'll just come out and make a few sounds go away. I've got all these bits flying around from these, these programs. I use the bits to modify sounds, use the bits to trigger other sounds, and I can have counters and delays that can wait so long before they initiate a different sound so I can adjust the probability of a sound coming in. Usually with a patch, I'll make it in three or four or five hours, and then I'll work on it for a month. So I'll add subtlety, I'll start taking layers away. This one's a little too busy for me. It's got a little too much going on. So what I wouldn't do is layer it more. I pull some of it back so it comes in less frequently, different voices come in, but not all at once as much as it does now. It's not bad, but it's, it's a little bit in your face. I would tend to pull it back a bit. And then I've got melodica samples in there from ETS that I'm here. I have melodica samples I recorded in the parking garage at ETH that come in. and some of them I tuned and they're perfect. Other ones I thought they'd work, but they're not quite working in D-Mod. I can hear it. So when I go back, they're subtle, they're in the background. I'm going to probably retune them and record it. So you can't control it from here with no, some kind of an app or... No, no. I can maybe have somebody go in and turn a knob, but that's as much as I can do. So I can't do that. I have to resample them. So that's lost. Hopefully when I go back, I'll still be in tune. This is the other thing, right? It's an, it, it got analog sound sources. So it can drift. I hope it stays in tune and I'll tweak the last little bit and I'll record it. And that's it. That's going to be its memory. Because when I finish, that patch physically comes out of the synth. It will never come back. If it was digital, I could always use it. Now it's gone. So the recording I make will be the very end of it. And uh, But that's one of the beauties. It's like a sand painting. You build it. It's for the moment. And you have to be totally creative next time. You can't build on your bones. Maybe you have habits, things you've learned about how to use the modules. And I always try to break that by thinking of a module in a different way. But uh, yeah, it'll, it'll go and something else will come. How significant is sound for your research in other fields? Oh, it's uh, one of the reasons why I came to the Media Lab. So when I was here at ETH, as you mentioned, I was doing high-energy physics, building drift chambers. Synthesizer was a side project that, that, that kind of kept me going on my own. But then when I went back to Boston, I worked at the Draper Lab doing spacecraft control. So I became an attitude control engineer for spacecraft. I learned all about that. And that was fun for its time. And I started getting involved in high-energy physics again, doing precision alignment for the detectors we're doing at uh, the LHC and the SSC. But then I had an opportunity when the SSC was canceled, the super, the super collider in Texas. We're going to have a very big accelerator we're building that was going to be uh, even, even higher energy than the LHC at CERN. 
But the U.S. didn't have the will to do that. CERN, of course, does a great job and is an infrastructure that's there, and they're committed to, to pushing physics. So the LHC for sure was going to go on. Uh, physics moved over there. I thought about coming back and going to the LHC because I, I love physics, and I was deeply involved again at that time. But the Media Lab at MIT you know, was maybe six or seven years old at that point. It was kind of a siren call to me. And I got to know some of the researchers there. They invited me to come for one year. I figured, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I'll try it and see what happens. And of course, that led to uh, a whole career. But at the Media Lab, I went because of the people doing electronic music. Todd Macover, the composer there, is a very good friend. And even back then, we'd have great talks about computer music, electronic music. My first work when I went there was designing new kinds of interfaces for music, for performance. But then that led to doing new kinds of human-computer interfaces in general for interacting with digital information. And that led, of course, to Internet of Things, wireless sensors, wireless sensor networks. So it all built off of, you know, coming really to do uh, future music interfaces. And in my group still, we, we still have music controllers. DTH now in the pavilion, we're going to be showing a fabric keyboard that Ermond uh, uh, did. He came actually from uh, Troster's group here at ETH. He did his Can master's you with me. It the uh, is an expert on sensei fabrics. So he builds textile sensors of various sorts. You can do so much with fabrics now. Media Lab, we did some very early work in the 90s. People have done great work since, and it's kind of coming back to the Media Lab again. And when Ermdy came as an ETH master student, I, I had an old idea. One of my old friends was Lyle Mays from the Pat Metheny Band. If you know jazz at all, you know them. And I built MIDI systems for a while, so I'd hang out with him back in the uh, late 90s, or early 2000s. And Lyle mentioned to me, Joe, one thing I'd love to have is a scarf keyboard. Says, you know, I wanted to be able to roll it up and put it in my suitcase, and then I could take it out and play it. So I thought, that's kind of cool, Lyle. I kept it in the back of my head. I even wrote a proposal of how to do this. And Ermody came. I said, okay, let's let's take this out and try to build it. So I got together with Ermody, and I showed him the proposal. I said, oh, this is all what I like to add to it. Fabrics are so, so many new things you can do with fabrics. It's really an amazing time for it. Show me anything exciting I can do on a fabric. I gave him four or five ideas, and uh, let's build a keyboard. And he kind of went beyond that. He even added more things. And uh, he did a great master's thesis on it. And then he came back to the Media Lab, actually, worked with one of my colleagues doing flexible electronics, came back to me for the PhD. But he rethought the keyboard in the process. So he's got this piece of fabric. You can roll it up. It's flexible. It's, it's like a piece of clothing. So it's, you can really wear it as a scarf. You could if you wanted to. Yeah, the original one, he definitely he actually has a demo where he wore it as a scarf. But uh, you, uh, you've got keys. You can play it. They're pressure sensitive. They're even position sensitive. They can sense your hand off the key. And he went further now. He's into electrochromics. It can change color. You heat the key up a little bit. It can even change its appearance, its color. So, And what does it sound like? Are you happy you with can, the sound? Oh, you can actually, you know... You can make it sound like what you wanted. And he had this really abstract patch going a few days ago when I visited. I said, Armadia, I can't play this. And put on some more direct sound. I put on kind of a jazz fusion, real direct thing. And I wailed on it. I just had so much fun playing it. I uh, didn't want to stop. So in your research, you bring together the analog world with the virtual world, if I understood correctly. Yeah, we... Uh We look at how this whole world full of sensors is, is basically changing everything about how we perceive reality. So uh, we, we look at this in many, many different ways. One is uh, looking at virtual worlds as intermediaries where you can have physical phenomena manifest in a virtual world. Then you can browse the virtual world wherever you want. You can be physically on-site, use augmented reality in different ways, or you can be remote and see the sensor information manifesting. You can even generate music. So we have the sensor information as a raw material for composers to think of new ways you can experience this, this kind of sensor landscape. 
So how important is it for you and also for your students to be able to think out of the box as scientists? Oh, it's critical. The Media Lab is based on that idea, and my group very much follows that. We don't want to do what other people do. We want to be ahead of the curve and, and do something that, that just looks crazy and unusual and then maybe in, in 10 years becomes you know the mainstream. And we've been successful at it, so it's been great. But you know we've got students that are really special at, 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 at thinking. Sometimes I have to nudge them a little bit, but not much. They'll, they'll just go there. It's just a wonderful environment to have people that are talented and are so creative to, to really think about trying to invent the future of that way. So how important are your Zurich gears for you today? Uh, they're critical in so many ways. I mean, uh, I was just a kid growing up in, in Somerville, Medford, Massachusetts before, right? I'd been to Canada, but you know, I'd been to California, but I never really was international. When I went to work with Sam Ting, the Nobel Prize winner that, that ran the physics group that I joined at MIT when I was a grad student, He asked me, uh, would you mind living in Switzerland? And I thought, and I said, no, <laughs> of course I wouldn't mind. That was, uh, you know, it sounded great. So I packed up and, uh, and moved to Geneva, and I was in Geneva for two years. And for me, that was tremendously expanding. And then I wanted to come back. So uh, the ETH group became closely allied with Ting. Uh, Hans Hofer ran our group at ETH, and, and Sam Ting really formed a very close alliance. So ETH and MIT, at least in high-energy physics and, and Ting's world, were, were very, very close. Uh, they depended on each other in so many ways and helped each other. It was, was important liaison. So I became a crucial, I was the first MIT who had to come here. Of course, I had the MIT ethos, let's try this, let's do this. I built my drift chamber out of beeswax and do these things that weren't very Swiss. So they had to adapt a little bit. I had to adapt. I learned to be much more precise and punctual for sure during those days. So it was a big part of growing up. And uh, it, it really internationalized me in many ways. So Geneva was the first episode, Zurich was the second. And I would trade that experience for nothing because it's so important to get out of your box. And, and this did it for me. And could you have imagined to stay here at ETH? I thought about it. When I came back to Zurich, I come back once in a while to Zurich, but it's been a long time since I've been here. I've been to Geneva more recently. But yeah, Zurich, uh, there's so many memories. And yeah, when I was coming, I was walking around where I used to live. I thought, well, I, had, I could have had another life because when I was here, I started to adapt. I, I had Swiss friends. I, I actually did a radio show with Laura, a couple of radio shows there. So I was starting to be able to give to the culture, not just take. I was taking, going to concerts and stuff, but I wanted to be able to give. And I was starting to give then, become a part of it. So yeah, if I had built more of a life, I could have very well stayed. I would have had a, a life here in Zurich. It would have been very different. I, I don't know where it would have went. That's another universe. Somewhere in another universe is a me that stayed here and went through whatever I went through. But whatever it was, I'm sure I would have found an edge, right? Uh, ETH has developed so much. You have all these great things happening in robotics. There's so much interdisciplinary collaboration here, which didn't exist when I was here. Uh, I would have been pushing the edge of that for sure. What do you miss about Switzerland when you're back in the U.S. on the East Coast? Oh, it's uh, it's such a wonderful place. I, you know what I miss a lot is the way it's all changed. I mean, I was here at a time, and I did a lot. There are things I, I, I didn't do that maybe I wish I had done. If I had stayed, I would have, you know, enjoyed myself more. I went hiking, got had, had more friends, blah, blah, blah. I was at the edge of that. But I've come back, right? ETH actually had me back twice. 
to work at CERN during the summer. I left my job at Draper Lab, came to CERN. They didn't really like it too much, but what the heck, I'm going to go to CERN. Uh, and that was a tremendously expansive time. I spent some time in Zurich working with the team here, too. So the connection with ETH is, is, is kept going. But when I would come back, I'd see change. And now I see a lot of change. And the change I, I see, too, culturally is so incredible. I mean, there's so many. We had the Rota Fabrique when I was here. I used to love going to the crazy recommended records store uh, shows that they would have there. Uh, there's the Theater Houdini that was having some avant-garde shows back in those days. But it's expanded now. There are lots of places where this really innovative Swiss uh, art kind of manifests. I love the new minimalist Swiss jazz like Sonar and, and Neil Barth Ronin and stuff like that. Um, in Geneva, too, when I go back, uh, I, I discover there's so many more places. I used to go to the Cavdus a little bit. It was starting, but now there are other venues. Lausanne has exploded as a cultural mecca for countercultural things. So this is wonderful. And this is something I wish I could experience more because it's a whole cultural transformation in Switzerland. You still have the precision. You have the Swiss... Uh, accuracy, right? But you've got all this great culture that's coming up in the middle of it that's fantastic. So, and it's new culture. It's not looking back, it's looking forward. It's and you don't have thing. that in Boston? Oh, we have a lot of it. So MIT is edgy and it's great, but we don't have the precision really. And MIT, we, we do what we have to do, right? We, we, we can go there. But here you're, you're, you're based on it. But you can take it in such a way that it can be be really manifested in very unusual ways and be very beautiful. So it grounds people, but then they can, you know, based on that grounding, reach out and do these cultural things that are just amazing. So uh, I see evidence of that, again, in the music I hear coming out of the new jazz scene here uh, and see all the venues that are cropping up for people to play. And it's also much... The city is much more nailed down, but in a good way. When I was here in the 80s, you got to realize it was a tense time for Zurich, right? Because you had the tear gas, you had the opera revolution and, you know, the, 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 the paint bombs, all of that. And so it was tense. Zurich was tense. And then you had the drug problem shortly after that, too. And there was crime and stuff. It's not like the Zurich that was supposed to be. Uh, and that's all kind of past, but it's cleaned up tremendously. But it hasn't, by cleaning up, become dull. That's the great thing. It could have. It could have cleaned up and become really dull. And, you know, Switzerland in those days had that tendency to want to level everything and make it dull. But no, it didn't. It got interesting. There's a cultural edge here that's fascinating. And in the technical edge, look what ETH has become. It's no longer a conservative institution like it was known in the day when I was here. It's edgy. It's trying. It's got these interdisciplinary collaborations. It's got great people it's brought in. All kinds of project collaboration with industry that was kind of unheard of when I was here. So, uh, yeah, uh, you've got an edge now in, in Zurich and, and certainly in Geneva, all over Switzerland, and it's wonderful to see. So it's, it's just amazing to be back. Thank you, Joe, for joining us today. Have a safe trip to Davos. Thank you. This episode of the ETH podcast was produced by Tis Wachter's Audio Story Lab and me, Jennifer Kakshuri. Sound by Joe Paradiso and the Paradiso Synth, sound design and mastering, Luki Fritz. <laughs>